Tonight, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 12, 1 Samuel chapter 12, and we're going to look at the life of Samuel, uh, but also spend some time leading up uh, to the context of why God raised Samuel up to do what he did. But we're going to start tonight by reading a summary of Samuel's ministry toward the end of his ministry in 1 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, This is a point where Samuel is uh, transitioning from being the main leader in Israel and Saul will be the king and will really hold the reins of leadership from this point on in Samuel. But in verse 19, uh, after Samuel has given uh, instruction to the people, kind of a final farewell instruction to the people, uh, the people respond in 1 Samuel 12, verse 19, to Samuel and say, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way." Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. True reform is something that is constantly needed. We need the Lord to be reforming our lives we need the Lord to, doing, to do work of reform in our families. We need the Lord to continue to be reforming our church. We need the Lord to do a work of reformation and professing Christianity as a whole. There's a constant need for reform, for the work of God, for the Word of God to bear the truth of God on people's minds and hearts. God raised up Samuel to be a reformer. In many ways, you could say that Samuel is the first reformer. And I'll show you what I mean by that as we go along this evening. But Samuel, in his life and what he accomplishes as he calls the people back to the Lord, as he establishes the preeminence of the Word of God, Samuel points to the Lord Jesus Christ who brings ultimate transformation. So when we look at Samuel, we're not looking at the end all. We're not saying if we just do these principles, things will go well. Uh, We are looking at a man that God raised up, but ultimately 
ultimately, he's pointing to the one that we need most, Christ himself, the one who transforms us from being dead in trespasses and sins to alive in Christ. So tonight, as we look at Samuel and some lessons from Samuel, we we need to understand that the application of what we learn from these scriptures is to be put into practice from the standpoint of being in Christ. We have the privilege of looking at the totality of God's Word and standing from from our completeness in Christ and looking at what God has put in His Word and applying it from the standpoint of being in Christ. So let's start by just looking at a little background leading up to Samuel's role. If we think about Scripture as a whole, the records of Scripture from the fall in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned against God, from the fall onward, there's the reinforcement of God's punishment for sin, which was what? What did God tell Adam would happen if he ate that fruit? You will surely die. And so from Genesis 3 onward, the Pentateuch and the historical books are full of corpses and carnage, dead people, millions of dead people. And it reinforces the reality that Sin brings death. I mean, think about the people that came out of Israel and then disobeyed uh, the Lord and, and refused to go into the promised land. They wandered for 40 years in the wilderness while the whole generation died. Millions of people, hundreds of thousands of people died. But God, according to His promise to Abraham, In Genesis 15, there are three times that God uh, promises Abraham that he'll raise up a seed, and and then he confirms that promise in Genesis 12, in Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. And in Genesis 15, uh, God promised that Abraham's seed would would be captives for 400 years and then would be delivered. So according to his promise to Abraham, God delivered Israel from Egypt miraculously, sustained them through their wilderness wanderings, which is one of the most significant portions in Scripture. There's actually more material about the wilderness wanderings than there is in the four Gospels. He sustained them through those 40 years of wilderness wanderings, and he brought them into Canaan. And the book of Joshua, so the first five books of our, of our uh, Bibles, uh, tell us about the, the people of Israel coming into existence, being in Egypt, and then coming into the land of Canaan. Joshua records their conquest of Canaan as they inhabited the promised land. But then we come to Judges. And Judges is not a very popular book. It's a very sobering book. The way that you can describe the book of Judges is is that it is a downward spiral. 
a downward spiral. And so from Judges, and we're going to look at some passages back in Judges, but from Judges up to the first couple of chapters here in 1 Samuel, God records this downward spiral of disobedience. So let's just take a few minutes here, and the first point tonight is a record of spiritual chaos, a record of spiritual chaos. And this record of spiritual chaos sets the stage for looking at Samuel's ministry and, and a couple of key uh, principles that characterized his life. But in this record of spiritual chaos, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Judges uh, chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. Actually, let me direct your attention toward the end of chapter 1. As the people of Israel are making their conquest, God had told them to drive out all the inhabitants of Canaan. And I I want us to just look at the first line of several verses in chapter 1. Look at Judges chapter 1, verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean. Look at verse 29. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Look at verse 30. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Verse 31. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or of Beth Enoth. So right away, right after Joshua dies and the elders that outlived him were seeing the people of God fail. They're not keeping God's word. They're not obeying what God has told them to do. And in chapter 2, in verse 11, starting in verse 11, God summarizes what the rest of Judges will fill out. So it's helpful to understand that chapter 2, verse 11, all the way to chapter 3, verse 6, is a summary of the whole book. God's going to say, here's what happened to Israel. And then the rest of Judges is going to flesh out exactly how that happened. So in Judges chapter 2, verse 11, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned. 
And the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. And then verse 16, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them, yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. And in those few verses, you have the pattern for the rest of Judges. The people would turn away from God. God would raise up a judge and deliver them. And then the people would turn away again, only worse. God would raise up a judge, deliver them, and then the people would turn away. You get the picture. And if you just start to flip through your Bibles in the book of Judges, in chapter 3, in verse 8, it says that they were under the hand of the king of Mesopotamia. So there's a Mesopotamian oppression that the people face. And then in chapter 3, verse 12, they're under the Moabite oppression. In chapter 4, verse 1, they're under Canaanite oppression. And then in chapter 6, they're under Midianite oppression. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. The Lord gave them to the hand of Midian seven years. And they were under Midianite oppression for a good while. And then as you work through the book, you come to chapter 11, verse 4. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. So now they're under Ammonite oppression. And finally, in chapter 13, verse 1, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And they're under Philistine oppression. So what we, what we start to see in Judges is this pattern of disobedience, the spiraling down of disobedience of the people of God as they, as they abandon God, as they dismiss God's word and did what was right in their own eyes. And so from chapter 3 to chapter 16 in the book of Judges, we find that the leaders get worse and worse. It caps off with Samson, who was just out of control with his lusts. The leaders that get worse and worse as they, as they live according to their own way. And then in chapter 17, there's a transition that takes place. And in chapter 17 and 18, and then in chapter 19 through 21, we have two appendices at the end of Judges. And these two appendices focus on the personal choices of Israel within the time of Judges. And so the first one, you have a man who takes a Levite into his house as his own personal priest. Now, does that sound like it corresponds to God's plan based on Exodus and Deuteronomy for the household to have his own personal priest and to, and to be a priest to an idol that he made from money that he stole from his mom? I mean, this is getting ridiculous. 
And then in chapters 19 and 21, you have an, a, basically an unspeakable record of evil as within Israel, you have unbelievable sexual perversions and violence to the point of dismembering a person, leading to the complete wiping out of a whole tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. And, and you get to the end of Judges and you just say, ugh, this is, this is despicable. This is gross. The leaders became worse. The personal choices were worse. And what we find as we come to the end of Judges, look at the last verse in the book of Judges. Chapter 21, verse 25. This is the theme. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, why is that such a big problem? Turn back to Numbers chapter 15. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers chapter 15. And tonight, we're tr- this is a Bible study. We're going to be turning, we're turning to a lot of passages uh, leading up to Uh, what we're looking at in Samuel. But in Numbers chapter 15, verse 39, look at what God told Israel. Again, keeping in mind the end of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Numbers 15, verse 39. This is regarding the instruction for some tassels the Lord had told them to put on their clothing. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes. Why? Which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Right. So do we see that specific instruction? God has told his people, you you are redeemed, you were delivered to do what I told tell you to do, to keep my commandments and specifically, specifically he says, don't follow your heart. Don't follow your eyes. Follow my word. And what do we have when we come to the end of Judges? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The exact opposite. The exact opposite of what God had commanded. Now we have Ruth that comes immediately after that, and and Ruth is like this... This, uh, this pillar of fresh air in the midst of all the depravity of judges because it took place during the Midianite oppression. The story of Ruth took place during the Midianite or the, the Moabite oppression. And we find that even in the midst of 
the whole society moving away, there are some people who love God and who trust in God. But then as we come back to Samuel, 1 Samuel, we need to think about the beginning of 1 Samuel as it links to the end of Judges. What's going on in Samuel? Well, the context of what's happening in Samuel is that everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. And this has, this has trickled down even to the way that the priests do their offerings and their service before the Lord. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Remember, we're looking, we're just gathering and looking at this record of spiritual chaos. Here's what's going on in Israel. The sons of Eli, who was the, who was the priest at the time, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who come there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give me meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you give it to me now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. And then later on, it talks about how those two sons were immoral before the Lord with the women of Israel. So the religious ritual has become entirely corrupted to the point that the priests were using their position as a position of power and advantage, profaning the sacrificial system and practicing gross immorality. And if if we just kind of pause right here, there's a point of application that, that that we need to observe. When God's people, when God's people begin to compromise with pagan culture, the result will always be, it will always be, it's inevitable, it will always be confused and chaotic lifestyles and worship. You start to compromise with the world, you start to compromise with the pagan culture, you start to do what's right in your own eyes instead of ordering your life according to the Word of God, the the result will always be confused and chaotic lifestyles and worship. On a practical level, you know, we, we we can't pursue sin all week and then expect to have vibrant worship on Sunday. And there's a difference between pursuing sin and struggling against sin. I'm talking about a life that's, that's uh, postured towards sin. 
compromised lifestyles will always lead to compromised worship. Worship that transitions from asking, what does God desire? That's true worship. True worship is offering to God what He desires. And, and fleshly lifestyles will lead to worship that a version of worship that transitions from asking what does God desire to asking what makes me feel good, which makes sense because that's all I'm after in my life. But any time we depart from the truth of God's word, any time we try to integrate uh, doing what God says with what the world says, it will all, always ultimately lead to what makes me feel good instead of what, what does God desire. And why is that? Well, simply for, for this reason, once God's word is marginalized, once the commandments of the Lord are set aside as optional, once the authority of Scripture is set aside as not the ultimate authority, then worship becomes man-centered. And as a result, experience and emotion become the benchmarks of successful worship. How did I feel when I left church today? Well, I didn't feel that great, so it must not have been a good day of worship. No. Was God's word preached? Did you sing psalms and hymns to to, to one another? Did you edify one another? Right, those are the things that God says please Him about worship. And so when we keep God's Word central, there's the joy and security of knowing that when we gather and we do what God has told us pleases Him, that's successful worship, regardless of how we feel. In fact, in fact, sometimes when I'm preaching, I feel really bad when I'm done. I'm like, boy, that was, a, that was a very convicting sermon as I preached it. And I know when Dom preaches, sometimes I leave feeling horrible, because it was such a great sermon. And I needed to hear it. It was the Word being delivered because that's what pleases the Lord. Anytime Scripture becomes subject to authentication by personal sense, like, well, it feels good, it ministered to me, so it must be true. No, 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 no. Scripture is true because it's God's Word, whether I sense it's true or not. And any time anything personal, anything my eyes in any way become the benchmark of assessment instead of God's Word, I'm going to end up like the judges. It's going to be messy, chaotic, confused. So, I mean, that's probably why we don't hear in general Christianity too many messages on judges. It's really not a pleasant book to look at. But it's true, and it shows us, it shows us the end result of following our own hearts. So when we come to 1 Samuel we're introduced with these potential candidates for reformers. You have the sons of the high priest, Eli's sons, that don't know the Lord. 
And then you have the servant of the high priest. Look at verse 18 in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she's asked of the Lord, and they would return to their home. And then we have the blessing that the Lord gave to Hannah. She conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. And then in verse 26, again, the young man Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So who is going to be the one God raises up? The sons of the priest or the servant of the priest? Well, in verse 34, because of the wickedness of Eli's sons, we're told as a man of God speaks to Eli, this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. So God has made his choice. He's chosen this little boy, this servant, who came from a dysfunctional home, but who came as a direct answer to his mother's prayer. He's chosen this boy, he's raised him up to be his servant to his people, to be a reformer. So we've looked at the record of spiritual chaos, and let's just now look at how God used Samuel. And the second point tonight is a record of spiritual commitment. A record of spiritual commitment. And there is so much in these chapters, early chapters of 1 Samuel. I, I hope your appetite perhaps is whetted to dig into these passages on your own and see how the Lord raised up this servant of his. But there are two elements that characterize Samuel's life in this record of spiritual commitment. But overall, what we find about Samuel is that Samuel was a man who was committed to the Lord in selfless obedience. What, what is it what is it that will characterize the life of those that God raises up to reform in the midst of spiritual chaos? Well, establishing spiritual order requires selfless obedience to the Word of God. And, and think about the contrast. Chaos comes from every man doing what's right in his own eyes. God raises up his servants to draw people back to himself and to establish the preeminence of the word of God. And, and those people are people who have, by God's grace, learn what it means to die to self and obey the word of God so that they can teach others to do the same. But if we go back to chapter 12 where we began, we see the two elements of his life stated. Verse 23, chapter 12, verse 23, Samuel says, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. 
So when we look at this record of spiritual commitment, the two elements that stand out in Samuel's life are selfless instruction of God's word and selfless intercession for God's people. Selfless instruction of God's word and selfless intercession for God's people. When we think about the selfless instruction of God's word, Samuel commits, he says, I will instruct you, I'll continue to instruct you in the good and right way. How do we go about that? Well, it begins with listening to God speak. If I'm going to be able to instruct in God's word, I need to hear what God says. And from early on in Samuel's life, we find that this was a pattern. Turn back to chapter 3, verse 10. This is the familiar story where the Lord is calling Samuel, and it takes Eli a little while to figure out what's going on. And finally he does and says, Samuel, go and lay down, and when he calls again, say, yes, Lord, your servant hears. And so in verse 10 of chapter 3, the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. As a young boy serving in the temple, Samuel was uh, had a tender, listening heart to the Lord and to the word of the Lord. And what we find in verse 19, chapter 3, verse 19, it says, As Samuel grew and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Being a selfless instructor of the word of God begins with listening to God speak. Samuel had personal interaction with the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 4, we won't take the time to turn there tonight, but it's a passage about Christ. And in that passage about Christ, who is the ultimate instruction from God, who is the living word of God, the testimony of the servant was that he awakens my ear to hear morning by morning. Christ himself was attuned to hearing the word of God. And we find Samuel early on in his life personally engaged with the, with the Lord and engaged with the Word of God. And, and he's doing it also in the context of submitted service to the Lord. He's serving the Lord in the temple, and he's, he's doing menial things like keeping the lamps burning and, and menial, tedious jobs, but he's serving the Lord faithfully. He's carrying out submitted service and, and it's, in, it's in the context of his submitted service to God, of carrying out what he's been asked to do, that he interacts with the Lord, and the Lord calls him to become a prophet for his purposes. And then, of course, as Samuel hears God, he himself obeys God. When the Lord says, speak, he speaks, even if it's unpleasant truth that needs to be uttered. 
The selfless instruction of the Word of God begins with listening to God. And then it's carried out, it's carried out by a fearless proclamation of the truth. Look at chapter 7, verse 3. Chapter 7. As Samuel begins some of his early ministry, the people are under a threat. And in verse 3 of chapter 7, Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord your God with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So think about that statement in the context that we set up from Judges. Remember in chapter 13, Israel was under Philistine oppression. And in that downward spiral of disobedience, they had inculcated the worship of many pagan gods into their worship of, of the true God. And Samuel, God raises up Samuel as his prophet and he says to the people, look, all right, here's what you need to do. You need to repent. You need to put away these foreign gods. You need to do different than what you're doing right now. And with great boldness, right, he says, you put these things away and you direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. Get rid of these false gods. He's fearlessly proclaiming the truth and he's willing to stand against the current practice of integration. In in chapter 8, The people ask for a king, and it's much to the dismay of Samuel. And in verses 10 through 18, he gives them a long list of things that the king will do and warning them. And he's speaking in that case against popular opinion. Everyone wants a king, and Samuel is saying the the Lord is going to give them a king, give them what they want, but he calls Samuel to say, look, you you can get what you want, but but you need to understand that it's going to be costly. And so he speaks against popular opinion. He's willing to contradict current practice. He's willing to contradict popular opinion. And and he speaks according to what God tells him to say in verses 6 through 9 of chapter 8. As the people are asking for a king, look at Samuel's response in verse 6. The thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to their deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so that they are, uh, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So in that case, even though Samuel didn't want to say those things because the Lord told him to, he did, even overriding his own personal desires. 
But then one other aspect of his fearless proclamation that we find in chapter 12. Think about this. This is after he's anointed Saul as king according to their word. But he continues, he continues to preach to them tirelessly, to instruct them tirelessly in the things of the Lord. Verse 6, chapter 12, verse 6, Samuel said to the people, The Lord is a witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. He's continuing to lay before them what God has done, to lay before them his commandments, proclaiming the truth tirelessly, even when it's resisted by the people. So the first aspect of this record of spiritual commitment is the selfless instruction of God's Word. Let's look at the second aspect, selfless intercession for God's people. Not only did Samuel preach and instruct, Samuel also prayed for the people. This was a pattern of life. Look back again at chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 5. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. And then down in verse 9, Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering the, offer, the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before the people of Israel. What was Samuel doing? He was praying for the people. And again, in chapter 8, verse 6, He's praying for the people. Even when they are asking for something that is displeasing, Samuel prayed to the Lord. And we've already read chapter 12, verse 23, where he says, far be it from me to cease praying for you. This is part of his ministry. It's a pattern of his life. And it's interesting that Samuel is noted in other places in Scripture as a preeminent intercessor for the people of God. Turn to Psalm 99. Psalm 99. In Psalm 99, Samuel is set right next to Moses and Aaron as one who calls upon the name of the Lord for the people of God. Psalm 99, verse 6, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. What a legacy. Samuel's listed with Moses and Aaron as someone who called out to the Lord, and God answered his prayers. And then if you turn over to Jeremiah chapter 15, Jeremiah chapter 15, and this is a sobering passage that shows just how far the people of Israel had gone. In Jeremiah 15 in verse 1, 
The Lord is speaking to Jeremiah and said to Jeremiah, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. Though Moses and Samuel stood before me. Now what, did, what is he referring to? Well, back in, back in Numbers chapter 14, Moses interceded for the people of Israel when God said, look, I'll wipe them out and I'll establish a whole new nation for you, Moses. And Moses went before the Lord and said, oh, Lord, please, please be merciful to your people. Let, let the, the nations of the earth see your power and your steadfast love as you preserve this people and, and as you're patient with them. And the Lord answered his prayer. It's remarkable. And Samuel, by inspiration of the Spirit of God, is put in the same category of Moses as someone who interceded effectively for the people as a reformer. His intercession for God's people was a pattern of life. And, and it was a pattern of life that was not based on the condition of the people. You know, it can be really, it's easy to pray for people that we like and that are doing well. But look at verse 19 in chapter 12 again, back in 1 Samuel. The people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And, you know, Samuel answers them. He doesn't say, oh, you know, that's okay. It wasn't a big deal. No. Verse 20, Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. You're right. You have done this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. But then in verse 23, again, what does he say about his commitment? Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. So yes, you've sinned against God. You've done what was wrong, what was selfish. But that's not going to keep me from praying for you. It's not dependent on the condition of the people, why not? Because God said, or, or Samuel says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. His intercession, he saw his intercession for the people of Israel as obedience to the Lord. He saw it as part of his responsibility that God gave based on the position God had put him in as a prophet for the people. So he said, I'm not going to sin against the Lord. I'll continue to pray for you. And even though my, my time of formal instruction is ending, as Saul is going to take the leadership, I'll continue to pray for you. His intercession continued beyond beyond the, the period of formal instruction. Whenever I, whenever I come uh, to this passage, I, I immediately think of my grandfather, who is now with the Lord, my mother's side. He was a pastor for nearly 50 years. He 
the Lord saved him out of a very dysfunctional family situation. His father abandoned him at a young age, but did a work of grace in, in his life. And obviously, I, I enjoyed the fruits of that as uh, my mother was reared by him and uh, my uncles uh, some actually texted one of my uncles today, um, men who love, who love the Lord. But uh, my grandfather, the, the memory that I have most about my grandfather, who passed away about 10 years ago or so, we would visit his house a lot growing up. And we always had family devotions in the morning. And I always hated it because I wanted to go fishing. But now I sure don't. And I remember, I remember that in those family devotional times, he would, he would pray, and, and without exception, he would pray for all of his children and all of his grandchildren. I don't know how many times I heard him pray for all of his children and all of his grandchildren. He wasn't a pastor any longer at the time. And every morning I would, when I was at his house, I would wake up, and he was always up before me, and he was always at the same table, same chair at the kitchen table with his Bible open and praying for those that he loved. In fact, when he died, I noticed that there was a, uh, on, on the chair, you know, it was one of those old kitchen chairs with the spindles coming up the back and, and the finish was rubbed off in, on those spindles where he would sit every morning. His belt would just, would rub on those same spindles every day. And it was just a tangible reminder of his faithfulness to pray for his family even after his period of formal ministry was over. And I, what an example, what a blessed example of a changed man who had the commitment to pray, to pray even until the Lord took him home. The record of spiritual commitment is a record of selfless instruction of God's word and of selfless intercession for God's people. We have Samuel. He's the last of the judges. He's the first of the prophets. We could say he's the first of the reformers. There will be another period in Israel's history when Reformation takes place, when they return from the exile. And Ezra and Nehemiah record record that. And do you know what is characteristic about the reforms that took place under Ezra and Nehemiah, the word of God was preached. Ezra prepared himself to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to proclaim it in Israel, Ezra 7, 9. Nehemiah 8, the people gathered together. They built a wood platform and they read the law of the Lord and they gave it sense to the people. And the, the Lord used that to reform their understanding, to bring them back to an understanding of the truth. But Samuel, Ezra, Nehemiah, all the godly men of the Old Testament, none of those men transformed the people. God used them. God raised them up, but they faced significant limitations. Samuel chapter 8, verse 3, his sons departed from his ways. They were imperfect. 
All of this is pointing and leading us and creating the anticipation for Christ, for Christ who is the perfect restorer of spiritual order. And think about the, think about the two principles that we, that we glean from, from Samuel's life. Instruction in God's word and intercession for God's people. Christ perfectly instructs. He is the living word. He is, John tells us in, in John chapter 1, he is the exposition of God. And Christ constantly intercedes for his people on the basis of his sacrifice. Samuel wouldn't cease to pray as long as he was living, but then he died. Christ ever lives to make intercession for his people. And just turn with me to, to, to two New Testament passages, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. As Paul encourages the Romans in the face of their suffering, in the face of dealing with sin, he comes to the glorious conclusion there in chapter 8. And part of the wonderful confidence that those in Christ have, verse 34 who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. And so he says, so who can separate us from the love of Christ? Now he is interceding for us. And then if you turn to Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 7 in verse 25, Hebrews 7, verse 25, and we'll look at, we'll actually begin in verse 23 because it sets the contrast to all the former priests. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death for continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. We, we are like the people of Israel. We say, we've sinned. Will you keep praying for us? And the answer from Christ is yes. Yes, I save to the uttermost. I, I, I intercede effectively. I always live to make intercession for you. And so while our accuser of the brethren tries to undo our usefulness by bringing all of our wickedness to mind. No, we, we run to the Lord Jesus. He is our intercessor and he continues to make intercession for us that we might walk effectively as we live our life here for him. Christ is, Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the one who establishes spiritual order by selfless obedience. He established spiritual order by selflessly going to the cross to pay for our sins and obedience to the will of the Father. 
And in Christ, in Christ, we have new life. We have redemption from the evil that we are apart from him. So how do you start a reformation? Well, we walk in selfless obedience out of commitment to the word, interceding for God's people, but ultimately, ultimately it's not us who are doing the reforming, is it? Ultimately, we hold forth the Lord Jesus Christ as the word from God. We hold forth Christ as the intercessor of his people. And we call people to faith and to repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. So may the Lord deliver us from our tendency to be like the judges and do what is right in our own eyes. And in Christ, enable us to instruct and to intercede according to his word and to be a blessing to those who are around us as we, as we proclaim the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the wonderful treasures of your word. It is so rich what you have given to us. And the ultimate richness finds, finds its, the preeminence in Christ alone. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you have placed us in a day, at a point in history when, when the fullness of time has come and Christ has come to fulfill the law and he came to redeem us from sin and that we can, we can see the whole scope of redemptive history from, from the perspective of the cross and with the anticipation of Christ's return and how we long for that. And so as we, at this time of year, even think more closely about Christ's coming to earth, Lord, may we have a fresh desire to love Christ for all that he has done for us in response to all that he has done for us and to truly rejoice that he came to save his people from their sin. And we pray it in his name. Amen.